Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. There's a huge demographic shift that's happening in New England. Our population is continuing to decline and we need an infusion of new blood and new culture. To think that we can fill all of these jobs with just native-born folks is, is unrealistic. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankowski. This trend means cities bringing in refugees and entire industries relying on immigrants to fill needed jobs. We'll look into the data. We'll also trace the history of the gun that won the West to right here in the East. Soldiers would actually pay their own money to get the Henry repeating rifle, and it became known as the damn Yankee rifle that fired all week. And finally, another historical tale about crime and the role of the prosecutor. It is just as important for the state's attorney to use the great powers of his office to protect the innocent as it is to convict the guilty. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. New England is nearing the point of a demographic crisis. The population of our six states is aging fast and we're having fewer children than the rest of the country. States have been trying to keep young people from leaving, and they've become desperate to find young workers who can fill jobs, attract new businesses, and pay taxes. Meanwhile, the issue of immigration, a way to get new people into the region, has become polarizing and politicized. Those trends and a search for some solutions are what's behind a new series of reports from the New England News Collaborative. It's called Facing Change. Let's start with a bit of the data. Here's Emily Corwin from New Hampshire Public Radio. It's hard to avoid the hand-wringing about aging demographics in New England these days. Our states have the lowest birth rates in the country. The northern states have the oldest populations in the country. Southern New England is up there, too. That leaves businesses and people like Jim Roche, who heads up New Hampshire's Chamber of Commerce, with this question. Will we have the workforce necessary to power our businesses throughout the state? From Bangor to Bennington to Bridgeport, fewer kids are being born and raised here. You can see that for yourself stepping inside any number of elementary schools. Becky Rule is principal of Kensington, New Hampshire's elementary school. So when I started three years ago, there were two third grade teachers, two fourth grade teachers, two fifth grade teachers. Um, and over the last few years, we've lost a third grade teacher, lost a fourth grade teacher, and last year we lost a fifth grade teacher. Kensington's elementary school has a dedicated room just for therapy, another for STEM projects, yet another for hands-on learning. This place has so much space. A decade ago, Rule says, more than twice as many students came here. So declining birth rates. It's a trend that keeps Dana Connors up at night. Connors heads up the main chamber of commerce. He says when his team looked at the numbers... You found a very strong case to be made. Um to attract the immigrant worker. As is the case across New England, Maine's business community is lobbying for programs to help people who are already in Maine find good jobs in Maine. But that won't be enough to stem the shortage posed by declining birth rates. Recently, Connors in the Maine Chamber of Commerce released a report recommending policies to attract more immigrants to Maine. The report suggests expanding the new Mainers Resource Center that already exists in Portland. Um, strengthen it by having 
others in, let's say, Lewis and Auburn. English, as we recognize as a barrier, trying to help in that respect. Transportation can be an issue. Maine's Governor Paul LePage, in the meantime, is famous for his anti-immigrant rhetoric. But that hasn't stopped state lawmakers from submitting bills to fund these programs. And at the local level, Portland and Bangor's city councils are both working to establish centers for job preparation, too. These efforts get a big thumbs up from SIGCO. That's a glass and metal fabricating company in Westbrook, Maine. Cindy Capeless manages SIGCO's human resource department. She says historically, this time of year, there were more workers than jobs. Not anymore. It's December in Maine and many people are still looking for help. Not SIGCO. About a third of SIGCO's workers are immigrants, many refugees. Thanks to them, Capeless says her company has enough staff. Next door in New Hampshire, Amadou Hamadi says New Hampshire businesses stand to benefit from immigrants, too. He heads up Manchester, New Hampshire's refugee resettlement program. Every refugee that comes here, they want to work and they want to contribute to to this economy, to this society. New Hampshire has the lowest unemployment rate in the nation, so companies struggle to find employees. Yet there's little talk of immigration. Hamadi says businesses should celebrate the role immigrants play in New Hampshire's economy. The city officials elected need also to celebrate that because we're keeping these industries going. So, But sometimes we don't see a lot of that being said. Research shows immigrants are economic drivers, not just for businesses, but also for state and local budgets. Kim Rubin is an economist who worked on a report published by the National Academies Press. She says first-generation immigrants are a net cost to states and towns. That's mostly due to education costs for larger families. But, she says, that education more than pays for itself once the kids grow up. Second-generation individuals are both paying more taxes and using less services than both the first and the third. Back at the main Chamber of Commerce, Dana Connors says he knows there's a lot of confusion and concern around immigration policy. But he says immigrants offer a lot of value, both economically and socially. So, he says, it pays to keep a clear head. That's Emily Corwin reporting. She's got loads of data about New England demographics at nextnewengland.org. So if our region is aging so fast, that leads to another big question. Who's going to take care of all those people late in life? WBUR's Shannon Dooling reports that the healthcare industry is banking on an immigrant workforce to fill that need. So the same thing with elders who are really old. They don't need 24-hour nursing care. Standing at the front of a classroom, an instructor writes basic medical definitions on a whiteboard. Nine students from all over the world scribble down notes and shout out answers in unison. So she calls 911, the ambulance comes, and they take him where? Yeah. ER. ER. Perfect. 30-year-old Ayu Lako sits next to classmates from Nepal, the Dominican Republic, and Jamaica. They're all here for a class called Working with Frail Elders at Boston-based Jewish Vocational Services. It's a nonprofit job training program focused on specific industries like food service and healthcare, both sectors facing labor shortages. Taking a break from the lecture, Laco says that after about two months, the course is going well. I was good. I like it. <laughs> what do you like about it? You know, uh, I don't have experience before, but I want to be like nursing in the future. This is good start for me. Before I got my baby, I used to work in, in the parking place. Yeah. 
Lako was a fashion model in Ethiopia before she arrived in Boston four years ago on a diversity visa. Her baby son was born here, and she's hopeful that with this training, she won't need to return to her job as a parking attendant. She says to check back with her in five years. You can see me like after five, you just start nursing. I'm going to be like full-time nursing. This is good to start to have good bridge for registrar nursing. Our students come to us in lots of different ways. Jerry Rubin is president and CEO of Jewish Vocational Services. Some of our students are coming to us because they're recent arrivals in the country. Uh, they may have actually been refugees who have been resettled here, um, and they're coming to us through a refugee resettlement agency. Established in 1938 to train recently arrived Jewish immigrants fleeing Europe, Rubin says classrooms are now full of Central Americans, Africans, and Europeans, all of whom have legal status in the U.S. These students, Rubin says, are the changing face of healthcare workers. If you go into any segment of the healthcare industry, whether it's the uh, acute care hospitals, community health centers, long-term care organizations, you're going to find a significant portion of the workforce are, are made up of immigrants. In fact, it's really the bedrock of the healthcare industry. As of 2014, more than a quarter of the home health care workers in Massachusetts were foreign-born. 41 percent of the nursing assistants in assisted living facilities were also born outside of the U.S. And these numbers likely miss immigrants who work part-time or may be here illegally and working under the radar. Reliance on immigrant labor for health care is only expected to increase, especially in New England, where there's a demographic storm brewing. The region is home to some of the oldest, whitest states in the country with the lowest birth rates. Adding all of this together reveals unsustainable labor trends. Barry Bluestone is a professor of public policy at Northeastern University, and he's run some of the jobs numbers. In Massachusetts, we project we're going to need about 93,000 additional home care workers over the next 10 years, or almost 10,000 a year. Bluestone says given the population projections for the region, namely a shrinking workforce, New England needs to plan accordingly. And he's concerned that national conversations around immigration could hamper those preparations. These are overwhelmingly immigrant workers. And what I fear is if the current kind of political environment either shuts off immigration or potential immigrants look at the United States and say this is not a very comfortable or safe place to be, I don't have any idea how we're going to fill those 10,000 jobs each year. Over the course of his campaign, President-elect Donald Trump spoke of mass deportations of people in the country illegally and the need to toughen screening for refugees coming to the U.S. If put into place, experts say these actions could further strain an industry that already struggles to fill positions. Dr. Robin Stone is senior vice president of research at Leading Age, a trade group for nonprofit elder care providers. Stone says meeting the need for care providers in the future is a labor opportunity for both immigrants and workers born here in the U.S. But she cautions that the native-born workforce is the same white working class that's expected to continually decline in numbers. To think that we can fill all of these jobs for the huge demand that we're going to see in the next 25 years with just native-born folks is, is unrealistic. And that's why training programs like this one at Jewish Vocational Services are so important. Ayu Lako, the student from Ethiopia, says she's hopeful that she'll eventually land her dream job in healthcare. I'm thinking if I got like hospital or older home health aid, take care of people. So while the future of immigration policy may be unclear, one thing we do know is there will be no shortage of people needing care. 
That's Shannon Dooling reporting. Our last stop on our journey through New England's demographic changes takes us to Rutland, Vermont. It's a small city that personifies a lot of what we're talking about. It's got an aging population, and some in town think it's time to welcome new residents. That's why they raised their hand to accept more than 100 refugees from Syria. The first of them arrives in January. Of course, not everyone is thrilled about the idea in town, but as Nina Keck reports, a lot of people are working together to make sure that this plan succeeds. For two hours on a recent Thursday night, Rutland's Unitarian Church was filled with an unusual sound, Arabic. Good evening. What would the response be? Yes, we have It's not a language you hear much in Rutland. There are few Muslims in the city, no Middle Eastern restaurants, and no mosques tucked between the many churches. Morgan Dennehy grew up near Rutland, studied Arabic in college, and spent time living in Egypt and Morocco. When he heard about the refugee resettlement plan, he decided to move back home. I was really blown away by the amount of interest that people had for wanting to help, and I just sort of felt like I had to do my part. You know, that was my, always my experience learning Arabic or any language. You know, you address someone in their own language is uh, just, just really powerful. Since early November, between 15 and 30 people have been attending his free Arabic classes. Two Arabic language professors from Middlebury College drive down each Thursday to help. You might be wondering, if Rutland is so small and has so little Middle Eastern culture, why bring Syrian and Iraqi refugees here in the first place? Well, compared to Burlington, where resettlement has been going on for decades, housing costs are low in Rutland, and employers have jobs to fill. And many, including Rutland Mayor Christopher Lewis, believe refugees will give the city a much-needed boost. My response, people who say, Rutland's not ready for this type of thing, is then when and how has this been working out for us? Not too well. Our population is continuing to decline, and we need an infusion of new blood and new culture. Barbara Richter agrees. She unlocks a storage room at a local church that's filled with items donated for the refugees. We have full sets of dishes. I mean, some of them are still in boxes. Richter is part of Rutland Welcomes, a volunteer group that formed in April that now has a small army ready to tutor, mentor, and provide transportation. With one phone call, I could mobilize a network of people to come in here and basically take what they need to set up a home. Okay, welcome everyone. I'm so glad to see you all. Across town, Castleton University's Emily Gleason greets 20 teachers and school counselors. Gleason specializes in literacy and cultural studies. And when she heard about Rutland's resettlement plans, she designed a semester-long course to help educators better understand the refugee crisis and the needs of refugee children. We try to think about the kind of cultural barriers they might face walking into a small rural school in New England and how we can be as inclusive and as welcoming as possible. Unlike many U.S. cities, Rutland doesn't have a refugee community already in place, so creating one has stirred up a lot of uncertainty. Jackie Gauthier, who's in the class and works in a local primary school, remarked at how difficult it had become to talk about. I had one person say the other day, she says, I don't know why I feel this way, because my family were immigrants, but I'm just not comfortable with them you know, coming to our community. So she was struggling with her own feelings. She didn't really understand why she felt that way. 
Many in Rutland, like Matt Howland, continue to have big concerns about how the city will absorb so many newcomers. While Howland applauds the efforts of local volunteers, he worries too much of the resettlement effort depends on them. Five years from now, what resources does the city have in place to pick up if a group like Rutland Welcomes no longer has the, the means to help support this program going forward? Roman Szmiakowski isn't worried. While not a refugee, he immigrated to Rutland from Poland 24 years ago, learned the language, and sent a daughter to law school. You know, I look at mirror every day. I came here and I made it. Szmiakowski teaches driver's ed and is developing a course to help refugees learn to drive. He says once they begin living in the community, he hopes people in Rutland will see them for what they are, other families just trying to make it. It's Nina Keck from VPR reporting. You can find all of our stories from our series Facing Change at nextnewengland.org. Coming up, we'll trace the history of a gun that won the West all the way back to New Haven, Connecticut. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. When you think about places where guns are big, you probably don't think Connecticut. The nutmeg state has one of the lowest gun ownership rates in America, and the state passed some of the strictest gun laws after the Sandy Hook tragedy of 2012. But in the second half of the 19th century, Connecticut was a gun manufacturing center for the world. There was, of course, the Colt revolver, which was made in Hartford and which made Sam Colt famous. Oliver Winchester, a poor shirtmaker from Massachusetts, became one of the titans of the industry, turning out a new kind of rifle from his factory in New Haven. Writer and BBC correspondent Laura Trevelyan chronicles Winchester's rise, the role of the rifle in the westward expansion of America, and much more about this history in her new book, The Winchester, The Gun That Built an American Dynasty. Laura Trevelyan, welcome to Next. Thank you so much for having me, John. It's a pleasure. So first of all, describe for us, who was Oliver Winchester? So Oliver Winchester is my great-great-great-grandfather. He was born in 1810 on the outskirts of Boston, and he rose from being a penniless farm boy to creating the Winchester Repeating Arms Company, named for one of the world's first repeating rifles. So a rifle that instead of having to stop and reload, which is what you had to do with the muskets, there was Oliver in the mid-19th century investing in this revolutionary new technology. And then eventually it took on his name and the name of Winchester became known around the world. Talk, if you would, a bit about the repeating rifle and how revolutionary we're talking here, because for many people, we we don't really remember a time before there were firearms of this type. I guess they used to fire muskets and they took a long time to load. But what was the technological leap between the rifle that Oliver Winchester developed and what came before? Well, it was. It was revolutionary because, as you say, you think back to the early 19th century, people just fired these muskets. You could only fire one bullet at a time. And then you had to break open your rifle, fish around for some more ammunition and put it in. But just as Oliver was looking for somewhere to invest his money in the mid-19th century, the technology was being developed 
that would allow the repeating rifle to become a reality so that you could fire more than one round at once. It's also a crucial time in American history because the Civil War is looming on the horizon. Well, and, and do talk about them. What was the role of, of his rifles in the Civil War? Because clearly you would think this would be a market that would open up and you'd have maybe both sides buying guns from Oliver Winchester, but it, it didn't turn out that way. No, you'd think so. And of course, that was Oliver's grand plan. And in fact, he was the great propagandist for his rifle. He would personally write letters to the newspapers saying that the northern side should be equipped with this revolutionary rifle because it was going to change the course of the war. But here's just a fascinating thing, which I think is is still true of defence procurement to this day, which is that even though Lincoln himself was something of a gun buff, and Lincoln actually tried out a couple of these repeating rifles, the fascinating thing is that the army bureaucracy, they thought that soldiers would just waste ammunition, that the technology wasn't there, that these rifles weren't accurate, and it was much better to just stick with what you had. So (laughs) there was a real go slow on the orders. And so just really through word of mouth, the Henry repeating rifle was acquired by individual regiments in the Civil War. So soldiers would actually pay their own money to get the Henry repeating rifle. And it became known as the damn Yankee rifle that fired all week. So he didn't sell in the large quantities, perhaps he hoped, but he did sell to the north. He didn't, though, sell to the south. No, he didn't. Well, he wasn't, as a good union man, he wasn't supposed to. I mean, I think he was tempted, but he was warned (laughs) that this would not be right. But then, of course, once the Civil War is over, there are enough people who have used the Henry repeating rifle in combat and can see the use of it so that when the next chapter in American history opens up, which is the settling of the West, the repeating rifle is there and ready to go and actually proves a lot more suitable for that idea of of settling the West because the cowboy on his horse can fire repeatedly without having to stop and reload. So it's so incredibly convenient. And thus begins the chapter in which the Winchester became known as the gun that won the West. So that, of course, is one of the more complicated parts of American history. When we talk about the gun that won the West, there's Uh, Some people who say it's the Winchester rifle and some people who say it's the Colt revolver. And there's probably a a continuing uh, (laughs) argument between uh, Hartford and New Haven over that. But beyond that, there is that question about what we mean to settle the West or win the West. What it essentially meant is um, white settlers moving West with guns and in most cases killing large number of Native Americans. I'm wondering how you and how but Winchester himself grappled with with that part of history. Well, when you read the accounts of what happened to this day, and what really struck me about it actually was how the Native Americans were lied to repeatedly, going all the way back to President Andrew Jackson. So he promised that there would be a permanent frontier beyond which the Native Americans wouldn't be moved. Whereas what happened is it moved all the way to California. And as you say, there was this slaughter of the Native Americans in the name of, well, it was justified in many ways by American exceptionalism, by the superiority of the white Christian settlers. And it's also hard to get a real handle on the Native American perspective because so little is written down. But I did 
find the most affecting book on it to be Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which is just the most appalling account, ending, of course, with the Trail of Tears, the forced march of those Native Americans who were left alive. So it, it's a horrible, horrible story. But Oliver Winchester doesn't seem to have had any guilt about it at all. For him, there was a market here. He was a businessman, and he was pleased to finally have a chance to sell his guns. You mentioned, of course, Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne, and, and that's that's a part of the legend, too. It's not just that this weapon was used in the West or that it was used in the Civil War. It's that this weapon was then memorialized in some of the most famous cowboy movies of all time, and then it took on this this new kind of significance. T- talk about that and, and how important the, the Jimmy Stewart-John Wayne role in the legacy of the Winchester is. Definitely, it's huge. And of course, it started even before the era of celluloid because you had Buffalo Bill's touring show. So Buffalo Bill with his Winchester rifle and also Native American chiefs. This this Wild West show went on tour. It went all the way to Paris. So the myth-making began very early on. And in fact, someone else who's part of that myth-making is, is Teddy Roosevelt, the American president, because he, after personal sadness, went out west with his Winchester rifle and discovered the joys of shooting big game. And that was part of his image-making too. And then Hollywood takes it up <laughs> with, with John Wayne and with Jimmy Stewart. And it's all mythologized and, and it's glorified. And there was even a statue of John Wayne outside the Winchester factory in New Haven. It was a tourist attraction. So the myth and the reality became completely bound together. When did things start to change for the Winchester Company? When did the company's fortunes begin to sag to the point where now we see some time ago that factory closing and and really this being a, a historical relic more than a than, than a going concern? Well, strangely enough, it was World War One which spelt the end of the family-owned company, which seems strange, doesn't it? Because you'd think... The war was an opportunity to sell lots of guns. In fact, that wasn't the case. So at the helm in World War One was my great-grandfather, who's called Winchester Bennett. And just an interesting character. Couldn't be more different from Oliver Winchester, whereas Oliver was this born with no money at all and worked his way up to becoming the richest man in New England, pretty much. Uh, his grandson, Winchester, was born into this wonderful society life. He had ballroom dancing lessons. He spoke foreign languages. He played an instrument. <laughs> Very much the gilded life it was. And yet there was something with him always that wasn't quite right. His parents were always worried about his nervous anxiety. And eventually, actually, he was admitted to the Silver Hill Clinic in Connecticut, which is a well-known psychiatric clinic for the treatment of addiction disorders. So he was addicted to something, and he always seemed to be in pain, whether it was alcohol, I don't know. But So this rather flawed character, Winchester Bennett, named for the gun, of course, is at the helm of the company in World War One. And as you know, the Americans didn't go into the war immediately, but Winchester got lots of orders from the British to rebuild the Enfield rifle for them. So this proves very problematic, and Winchester decide to expand their factory in New Haven. But, you know, the British want them to adjust the gun. They don't think it's going to work, and it's all very difficult. Then the Americans enter the war. There are even more orders. So the company expands the plant, um, but it has a fixed price from the government 
for every rifle. And none of their numbers add up by the end of the war. They're $8 million in debt. They have to borrow more money. And then demand dries up. So they don't have anything to do with all these expensive buildings. So they're sort of all casting around, wondering what to do. And Winchester Bennett in the middle of the war has just left the company altogether. And the company is advised that it should use all this excess space that they have to make household products, which are going to be as good as the gun, is the slogan. So Winchester suddenly goes into making uh, lawnmowers, baseball bats, cutlery, washing machines, roller skates. They diversify. And it proves to be a complete disaster. And then the depression comes and uh, the company ends up going bankrupt and um, it's put up for sale, goes into receivership. Mm. So, so what is left of the Winchester Company now? Does just the name remain? So the family ownership ended in 1931. The company was actually bought by the Olin Corporation. And now Winchester is a name which is licensed. So the gun is no longer produced in New Haven. That ended 10 years ago. Winchester rifles are made in Turkey. (laughs) They're made in, in different parts of the world. So it's just a name which is licensed by a big conglomerate now. But you can still buy the rifles. But when you think of it, it's such an extraordinary turnaround. I mean, New Haven, Winchester was New Haven, particularly in the era of wartime production, when the whole city stepped up in the First World War and again in in the Second World War when Olin owned Winchester. And now the actual factory itself in New Haven has now been turned into apartments. The history of the building has been used in the marketing of the apartments, but um, that's all that remains of it. So as a reporter who's been in America covering the things that happen in America since 2004, the notion of the gun in America is very much more fraught than it was in the, say, 1950s when we were watching John Wayne movies. What do you make of that, and and how does your experience as being part of this family color some of what you think about the, the American conversation surrounding guns right now, Laura? I reported on the aftermath of Sandy Hook, and I remember standing outside the temporary morgue, which was put up for those tiny children who were killed by that assault weapon and by the person who was using it. And you ask yourself, well, how did we get from there to here? And the role of the gun and the importance of the Second Amendment is used to justify the fact that these weapons are available to the public. Clearly, there's a disconnect, at least it feels to me like there's a disconnect between the past and the present and the need for Americans, particularly in the Civil War era and settling of the West, the need for people to have weapons to protect their property, to get food, and now in a society which is much more urban. It's very complicated, but the one thing I suppose that the history makes me understand is why people feel so incredibly strongly about the issue because the history of the gun is rooted in the history of America. Lord Trevelyan, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And congratulations on this book. Thank you, John. Lord Trevelyan's book is called The Winchester, The Gun That Built an American Dynasty. It's out in hardcover from Yale University Press. Coming up, an unlikely friendship between a prosecutor and the accused. It's next.
Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Next, we're going to bring you another story that takes us back in history. It's about the murder of a Catholic priest who was killed on a busy street corner and the unlikely bond that was formed between the suspect and the prosecutor. Lisa Mullins from WBUR has our story. The murder happened almost a century ago, but the criminal case was so spectacular that years later, Hollywood made a movie out of it. It's called Boomerang. The story begins in Bridgeport, Connecticut, on February 4, 1924. World War I was over, and life was good in the city. People braved the winter chill that night to enjoy dinner out or to take in a show at one of the grand theaters. At 7.45, actress Ethel Barrymore was taking the stage downtown. Buster Keaton was performing a few streets over. And a real-life drama was about to play out in Bridgeport, one that would shake the city to its core. A Catholic priest stepped out for his nightly stroll. A man known and loved by all. You might find him almost any evening on Main Street taking his constitutional after supper. His name was Hubert Dame. He was 56 years old, born in Germany. He'd been the beloved pastor at St. Joseph's Church in Bridgeport for 23 years. Hello, Father. Hello, my dear. As Father Dame walked along Main Street, a man approached him from behind. He pointed a revolver by the priest's ear, fired a single shot, and then fled. No one could grab him. Father Dame died at the hospital within hours. Nuns and priests were in the hallways in tears. Meanwhile, the manhunt began. Bridgeport police were under intense pressure from the public and press to find the killer. One week after the murder, an officer in a nearby town noticed a young man he thought was acting strangely. The man was Harold Israel from rural Pottsville, Pennsylvania. He was a wispy 20-year-old, barely over five feet tall. He'd been honorably discharged from the Army a few months before. Israel had been staying in a Bridgeport boarding house where he met up with some Army buddies. He didn't own much, but he did have a gun on him. It had five chambers. Four of them were loaded. One bullet had been fired. Police booked Harold Israel on gun charges. Then Bridgeport cops interrogated him about the murder of Father Dame. They pelted him with questions for 28 hours. Israel insisted he had nothing to do with the crime. Here's how the film Boomerang portrayed it. What are you trying to do to me? Why do you keep lying, son? You can't get away with anything. You're crazy. Let's I talk about the gun again. Finally, Israel confessed. He was charged with first-degree murder. They could hang you for that. The young veteran became public enemy number one. Police investigation turned up people who witnessed the shooting and some who saw the gunman run away. They described the shooter's dark overcoat and gray cap. That sounded a little like the suspect, Harold Israel's clothes. Some of the witnesses identified Israel as the killer when police brought him to the station. And a ballistics engineer told police the bullet that killed the priest came from Harold Israel's revolver. The evidence was presented to the chief prosecutor for the county, Homer Cummings. Homer Cummings was a man of great prominence. He'd been mayor of Stamford, Connecticut three times and chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Cummings was 54 years old. He was an imposing man, 6'2". He was Ivy League, educated at Yale. 
On May 27, 1924, more than three months after the priest was murdered, there was a court hearing. Prosecutor Cummings took his place before the judge. It seemed all of Bridgeport was watching. Be seated, please. Homer Cummings spoke for about 90 minutes, no notes. Actor Dana Andrews played the prosecutor in the film. The evidence against the accused seemed overwhelming. On its face, at least, it seemed like a well-nigh perfect case. But maybe it wasn't. Some people wondered if the suspect, Harold Israel, was a victim of circumstance. Prosecutor Cummings had felt compelled to conduct his own investigation. That day in court, even though he was the lawyer in charge of prosecuting the case, he methodically addressed each scrap of evidence and tore it to shreds. Cummings had gone to the scene of the crime in the dark of night. He concluded that people who saw the killer could not have identified him running away in such dim light. What's more, Cummings had hired six ballistics experts. They told him that the bullet that killed Father Dami could not have come from the gun found on the accused, Harold Israel. The marks on the bullet just weren't right. And what about the fact that Israel confessed to the crime? Well, doctors who examined Israel claimed the police interrogation left the young suspect too exhausted to say anything reliable, that he only wanted to get some sleep. In fact, once Israel did get rest, he again insisted he was innocent. And that's what Prosecutor Cummings concluded. Harold Israel was not the killer. It is just as important for the state's attorney to use the great powers of his office to protect the innocent as it is to convict the guilty. Charges dropped, case closed. The prosecutor had defended the suspect. That was extraordinary then. It's extraordinary now. Prosecutors are under pressure to get convictions, and the innocent have been put in prison for life. Homer Cummings was celebrated for resisting the pressure to convict. Future Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter told Cummings that the case would live in the annals as a standard by which prosecutors would be judged. Harold Israel wasn't in court the day his life was spared. When he was told he'd be set free, he said, that's good. It came out right. That's where the case that's taught in law schools today ends. And that's where the movie Boomerang ends. But there's another chapter to the story. This one's personal. Harold Israel, the former suspect and army vet, headed home to Pennsylvania to find a job. Meanwhile, prosecutor Homer Cummings' star kept rising. In 1933, President Franklin Roosevelt tapped Cummings as U.S. Attorney General. Cummings built up the FBI and fought organized crime. When he retired from the government, Cummings went back to practice law at the two firms he founded. A couple of years went by, and then the former prosecutor received a letter. It was from someone he likely thought he'd never encounter again. The man he saved from the gallows, Harold Israel. I guess you'd think that I have the nerve to write to you for what you have did for me. But you see, I have to write to someone. I'm out of work about three years, and it looks like I can't get any work down here because everywhere I go, they say no. So I don't know what to do. He signed it. Your friend, Harold Israel. Homer Cummings wrote back within a week. He was kind, but said he wasn't sure how he could help. Then five more years passed, and Hollywood came calling. It was 1946. The producers of Boomerang wanted to know where Harold Israel had ended up. So Cummings asked FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover to investigate. Hoover reported back. Israel, the one-time murder suspect, had become a family man, a hard worker and a trustee in his church in the village of Gilberton, Pennsylvania. Cummings welcomed the news. 
Then he urged the filmmakers to depict Harold Israel as a respectable man, not as a penniless tramp, the way Israel had been portrayed in a magazine article that led to the film. And the former prosecutor negotiated with the producers to pay Israel $18,000 for the rights to his story. That would be about a quarter million dollars today. A nice take for a coal worker raising a family in a small town. Gilberton was a company town, a coal company that owned most of the land in the village. Harold Israel worked at the coal yard seven days a week for a sum of $60. He lived in a simple duplex on an unpaved road. Some of Israel's descendants still live nearby. We went to Gilberton to meet them at the home of Israel's granddaughter, Darlene Friel. Hi, I'm Lisa. How are you? Good, how are you? We brought something we knew the Israel descendants would want to see transcripts of letters we learned about while researching the story. The letters had gone back and forth from the Israel family in Pennsylvania to the grand East Coast home of Attorney Cummings. The Israel grandkids knew the letters existed, but they'd never read them. The first letter was written by their grandmother, Olive, that's Harold Israel's wife. She had written to the former prosecutor, Homer Cummings, to thank him for securing the money from the film. Lisa, do you want to read this? We can't begin to thank you enough for what you have done for us. Lisa Barrier is one of the Israel grandchildren. I keep asking my husband, are you sure it is true? He just laughs at me and says, sure it is. To him, Homer Cummings, you are next to God. He worships you. He said he would trust you more than anybody in this world. Typical of my gram. Uh. That's why I started crying. Barrier and the rest of the Israel family have always known about their grandfather Harold's brush with the law, but not from him. Here's Israel's granddaughter, Darlene Friel. It was always Graham. He never talked about that. I think that was one part of his life that he didn't want to dwell on or think of. He just wanted to get on with his life and enjoy his family and everything. As the years went by, there were many more letters between Olive Israel and Homer Cummings, 10 years worth. Olive, or Graham, often asked the former prosecutor for advice. In one letter, she wondered if she and Harold were spending their movie payout too lavishly. They'd bought a used Chevy, planned to put a bathroom inside the house, and each get a new set of teeth. Homer Cummings wrote her back. I note the description of the expenditures you're making, and it seems to me that they are entirely justified. I hope that you and your family will derive great comfort and happiness from these expenditures. The correspondence continued. We've built an extra room on our home. We use our home a good deal. The boys love to read funny books and play records, so this room will be used real hard. Mrs. Cummings and I returned from Palm Beach on the 12th of June. We had quite a long stay there and enjoyed the vacation very much indeed. The former prosecutor, Homer Cummings, had a small family. He'd married four times, he became a widower twice, and divorced twice. He had just one grandson, but the dynamics of divorce kept the Cummings family members distant. Meanwhile, Cummings' relationship with the Israels grew warmer. He sent gifts to the Israel home in Pennsylvania, pearls and perfumes for Olive, a set of lamps for the house, baby clothes his wife knit for the Israel grandchildren. You're getting together quite a family, and I hope that happiness and content follow you all the days of your life. That family is grateful to Homer Cummings to this day, first for his courage in the courtroom, and then for his kindness. Olive Israel used to remind her grandkids they wouldn't be here if the prosecutor hadn't done what he did, eviscerate the prosecution's own case, 
and exonerate their grandfather, Harold Israel's granddaughter, Darlene Friel. Cummings had a good heart for how he treated my grandfather and tried to protect him. Homer Cummings wrote his last letter to the Israels in 1956, 32 years after he and Harold met following the murder. Two months later, Cummings died at the age of 86. There's a list of dozens of people who sent flowers to the Cummings funeral. Among them, a Supreme Court justice, a college president, an ambassador, and Mr. and Mrs. Harold Israel, Gilberton, Pennsylvania. A final thank you from the one-time murder defendant to the prosecutor who saved his life. Harold Israel died eight years later of black lung disease, the scourge of the coal worker. He was 60 years old. That was Lisa Mullins from WBUR reporting, with production by Lynn Jolliger. Ken Armstrong at the Marshall Project contributed to the story. We've got photos and interviews featuring descendants of Harold Israel and Homer Cummings and others associated with the trial at nextnewengland.org. We've also posted the trailer from the 1947 film Boomerang. Finally this week, reporter Sean Hurley was walking in the New Hampshire woods when he came across an unusually festive sight. I was out walking last week on the Pine Flat Ski Trail in my hometown of Thornton. It's not flat. I've never seen a skier there. But there are pines. The trail runs alongside Smart's Brook. And as the trail rises, the brook falls away into a deep, moss-clad gorge. At the height of land, there's a pine forest. Green triangles everywhere, as my son Sam once said. And it was here, amongst these green triangles, about a half mile from the road, that I found a fully decorated Christmas tree. Next day, I took my wife and son to see it. We brought along an ornament to hang on the tree, to sort of add to it, to join up with whoever it was that decorated it in the first place. But halfway there, we came upon a group of seven men decorating their own tree beside the path. We did this a while ago, actually, in Peterborough on a hike. And I think we just thought about, oh, what a cool thing to do. Um, and we went out on a hike and we decorated a tree. We brought presents with us. Um, and we exchanged presents at the same time. And with a Christmas party planned for today at his house, Mike Bovere thought it was time to do it again. So we decided, why not go for a hike uh, before we have the party and find a tree to decorate? I mean, I put out the idea. No one said, what a crazy idea, right? You guys were okay with it, right? I think it's great. It's happiness. Brings a smile to your face. We all brought something. Rob LaVerger holds up a red star and a silver bell as Rick McCurdy removes and hides his jingle bell hat and handful of ornaments as though the Christmas police might be nearby. I feel like I'm going to get arrested. So whose idea was this? Who did the decorations? <laughs> and if the Christmas police ever did ask them these questions, John Norman has an answer. We're going to come back in March and take everything down. So we are going to check on it every now and then. Maybe people will add to this one also. Yeah. Or maybe the tree next to it will start getting decorated and we'll have a little Christmas tree decorated contest. Yeah, yeah, there'll be like three trees, four trees, five trees decorated in this area. Yeah. We'll start a new tradition out here. 
After Rob LaVerger sets his red star on the top of their tree, the seven continue their hike until they come upon the decorated tree I found the day before. Yeah, they didn't bring it all the way to the top. There's no tree topper, so ours is much better. <laughs> well, what's kind of nice about it is someone is doing it on behalf of not really themselves, but for other people. In the middle of nowhere. It's like, what were they thinking? My wife and son find an empty space in the tree and hang our ornament as the seven wild Christmas tree decorators head off. And as we leave the land of green triangles, my son points out that we're going to have to come back. There's another tree. We need to help decorate. That was Sean Hurley, North Country reporter for New Hampshire Public Radio. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you'd like to hear more of his music, just go to toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to the band Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.